Good morning, everybody. Y'all doing all right? All right, some feedback. You guys awake? I'm almost awake. Uh, my wife and I, we actually landed at Little Rock Airport at 11.30 last night. Um, our travels got delayed, but we made it in. Drew was about ready to lose his mind. Um, I was texting him like, hey, my flight's been delayed a few times. I uh, just want to give you a heads up in case things go south here. Uh, but everything worked out, and uh, we're excited to be here. So I'm Sean Richards. That was my family. We live on Monum Island. It's my island. No, it's not mine. It's God's island, but we have the opportunity to serve there. This morning, it's going to be twofold. I'm going to share kind of our story, what we're doing, and uh, like our ministry. And then the other side is going to be continuing on in this series in Acts. Uh, and we're going to be specifically talking about when God says no. And uh, here's the thing, as a missionary and someone in ministry, uh, sometimes God says no and it hurts. And so I feel like sometimes, like this particular subject, when Drew brought it to me, I was like, I've got some, some stories. Uh, and I won't go into all of them, but... Uh, because we don't have time for that. But I'm going to get going into the story of our ministry. Uh, first, I want to introduce my family to you. If you can go ahead and give me the next slide. Uh, this is my family. Uh, Jenny is my wife, beautiful wife. And as you can tell immediately, I married up. And that is a good thing. All you young guys, take note. Um, if you want to know the secret, uh, there's a, just simple rules. Like I wanted to be a missionary, so I had three criteria of what I was looking for in a wife. She always hates it when I say this in churches. But I was looking for a girl who had the three H's, that she was holy, that she was hot, and she was willing to live in a hut. And, um, and I got all three. And that was my thing in college. I always told my friends, I'm looking for the three H's, guys. And, um, you know, they thought I was crazy. And I was, but you know what? God honored that. Um, so, and then we have Zeke, our firstborn, and he's your typical firstborn, man. He's, he's a rule follower. Uh, he, he cries and gets upset and angry when his other brothers are disobeying sometimes. Like, that's just the type of kid that he is. Um, he will tell on himself always. Uh, he, I don't know if he has the, uh, the physical ability to lie. Um, Gabe is our firecracker. That kid has energy that goes for ages, and he goes 100 miles an hour from when he wakes up at 6 a.m. until he goes to bed. Now, the thing is, he says, he claims that he does not sleep. He stays awake all night, but as soon as he hits the bed at 7 o'clock, boom, he's out until 6 in the morning, 100 miles an hour again. Now, Ash, Ash is our little, cute, adorable child who is brilliant, and he's sweet, and he's the youngest child because he knows how to, like, tell you exactly what you want to hear to get out of trouble. Like, he knows when he's done something wrong, and he'll try to tell a joke to get out of it, things like that. He's, yeah, you know, you know your youngest children. Um, I was the same way, and so I see a little bit of myself in him. Now, Ash actually... Um, while we were back, we found out uh, definitively that he has human growth hormone deficiency. And so that was really great while we were back to figure that out. We were able to raise funds so that we could go to Australia twice a year so he could see a pediatric endocrinologist. Australia is the closest place that we can go to in order to see one of those specialists. So uh, we're really excited about that. Um, but um, so, yeah, that's my family. And we have been going down this journey, but why would we go down this journey? You know, why be missionaries? Why move to Papua New Guinea to live on this volcano to do all that? Why? 
Um, well, I didn't grow up in the church. You see, I grew up in a family where if you asked us, my parents would say we were Christian. We celebrated Christmas and Easter. We didn't even go to church then. But I never grew up believing that God was real. I, if you would have asked me, I would have said, yeah, I'm an atheist. But I ended up at the University of Arkansas. I grew up in northern Iowa, hence the no southern accent. Please forgive me. Um, God loves us up there too. Um, but I call myself an Arkansan now, so you can credit me as one of yours. Um, I ended up at the University of Arkansas. I'm living in Humphreys Hall. Did anyone go to the University of Arkansas here? What's the name for Humphreys Hall? Hump Dump. Why is it Hump Dump? Because it's the worst dorm on campus because it didn't have any air conditioning. It was the only dorm that didn't have air conditioning. I live on the seventh floor. And I was living in that dorm with all these freshmen who had zero value to the university. Like, we weren't on the sports teams. We weren't on academic scholarship. We were just there. Um, and so we get crammed to this dorm uh, to sweat it out our freshman year. And if we survive, we get to move on. Um, but there was actually some upperclassmen who chose to live in this dorm who chose to live in the worst dorm on campus with no air conditioning, these upperclassmen, juniors and seniors, said, I'm going to live for Christ while I'm in college at the University of Arkansas, and I'm going to move in to the worst dorm on campus where I know all of the other people are freshmen so I can share the gospel with all the incoming freshmen. And they went and they knocked on the doors and shared the gospel over and over and over again. They would come to my door and they would pass it up, and they'd knock on the next door. Why would they pass up my door? Well, if you would have known me in the fall of 2004, you would have known why. Because during that transition from high school to college, I was struggling with a lot of things. I was struggling with the weight of my sin, decisions I'd made, and decisions I'd made before I even understood what I was doing. But that weight of that sin was bearing down on me. And what I did to cover it up is I would get drunk, and I would get high, but I would want to hide that pain. How many of you have ever hidden pain in your life? Put on a facade so that people wouldn't see it. You'd have the big personality. You'd be loud. You'd be the, you'd be the fun guy to be around, the fun girl to be around. It's always a party. Let's not, let's not focus on what's really going on inside. Always shallow, always fun. And that's where I was, but I was always drunk or high. And so this loud big guy who's, either, who's usually inebriated. No one wanted to knock on my door to share the gospel because they never know uh, what it was going to be like. So they're afraid. But finally in February, two guys, two seniors knocked on my door and they shared the gospel with me. You see, my whole life I had heard that Jesus died for your sins. If you live in America, you've heard that a million times at least. But there was no context to what that meant. Yeah, okay, Jesus died for our sins. Um, Abraham Lincoln died for the sake of abolishing slavery. Martin Luther King died for civil rights. It's another guy who died for something. There was no context as to why that mattered. But that day they explained to me that Jesus was the son of God who is perfect and holy and blameless in his life. And we were, as men, separated from God because of our sin. And so when Jesus died for our sins, he was able to pay the price and cover that space between us and God that we were separated and bring us back into communion with God if only we believed it was true. And so I understood for the first time, it clicked. 
I understand what they meant now all these years when they said Jesus died for your sins. And however, I didn't know what I believed and why. They made it clear. I understood the gospel for the first time, but I knew I wasn't sure. So I lied to them. I said, yeah, man, I made that decision a few weeks ago. Thank you so much for sharing with me. That was so encouraging. I'm thinking, I got to get these guys out of my room. And so I think I've got them off my back. And you know what they're thinking? We've got a new Christian. We need to disciple this guy. And so they want to meet up with me. They're like calling me up, like, hey, Sean, let's hang out. You know, we're going to go through 30-day challenge to go through scripture, a verse every day of the month so you can get a habit of getting in God's word. I'm going to teach you how to pray. I'm going to do it. I was like, okay. And I knew every Tuesday they were going to, Joe was going to call me. He was going to come pick me up in my dorm and take me to the campus ministry large group meeting Tuesday night. So I knew no matter what, Sean, on Tuesdays, don't get drunk and don't get high because Joe's coming to get you. And I only forgot once. <laughs> and Joe was persistent and still drugged me there. And I was freaking out. But you know what? God used all of that in my life. And people befriended me from this campus ministry. Next thing you know, six months later, uh, through, through a lot of things, I'm not going to dig into all of it, but I ended up believing that this was true and that God would even forgive me in light of all the horrible things that I did in my life. Not because of how bad they were, but just because of I'm a sinner and I'm separated from him. I came to realize that I did bad things because I was a bad person, not the other way around. Does that make sense? When we sin, it's not, it's because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. It's the other way around. When we came into this world, we had a sin nature. And that is why we do the bad things that we do. And that is what Jesus has come to fix. You see, it's not about how bad you are or the wrong things that you've done in your life. It's just simply that you are a sinner separated from God. And that's why you do all those things. And so that became clear, become a believer. And I'm like, man, I'm going to follow Jesus. I, I call up a guy and I'm like, hey, you're leading a Bible study this year? He's like, I don't know. I was thinking about taking a year off. I've been doing this for like three years. I'm on year five of college and I got two more to go. Um, he was on the eight-year track for a bachelor's degree. <laughs> but <laughs> it's funny because it's true. Um, but... He's like, I'm thinking about taking the year off. I go, forget that, man. You're leading the Bible study. I just became a Christian, and I'm going to be in it. Okay. I'm in this Bible study. I get discipled. I end up going to the summer project down in Destin, Florida, summer of 2006. <clears throat> and uh, cool story is I actually got to go down there uh, two weeks ago, and then last week I was in San Diego for the same uh, summer project to do a conference. It's the missions conference. I'm sitting there at this project, the missions conference, and I hear a talk about what God's word says about all the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation, what his word says about it. And I caught a vision that God wants to reach the entire world and that, man, this guy's like challenging me left and right. So afterwards, like, I've got questions. See, I've been a Christian for a short while. I didn't understand God's word all that well. I was studying it. I was getting into it. I was devouring it, really. But I didn't know it all. You know, I had this question. So I went to the speaker. His name was Claude. Claude, <clears throat> I've got a question. What about the people who live in the middle of the jungle somewhere who never have an opportunity to hear this 
good news. What happens to them? You see, I was unsure because I didn't know God's word well. I thought maybe there's a loophole in Jude somewhere because I hadn't, I hadn't gotten to Jude. Jude's like right before Revelation, after the first, second, and third John, which is different than the gospel of John. It was all confusing to me, but Jude's in there, and I hadn't gotten to it yet. Maybe there's a loophole. Like if, you, if people in the jungle who haven't heard, they get a free ticket. Uh, but no, it's not there. I found this out. Claude didn't tell me no. He just took me to what God's word says. First, he took me to Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, where it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. So immediately, I understand that they need to believe in order to call upon the name of the Lord, and someone has to go tell them. So immediately, they have to believe, someone has to go tell them. Then he took me to the obvious one, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So they have to believe someone's got to tell them. And Jesus told us to do this almost 2,000 years ago. Man, it's getting hot in here. Whew. And then he takes me to the end picture to see the end of, so I know what's going to happen. And he takes me to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. So they need to believe. Someone has to tell them. Jesus told us to do this almost 2,000 years ago, and we know for sure it's going to happen. Because this hasn't happened yet, but we know from prophecy that we have seen fulfilled up to this point, we know that everything God promises is going to come true. And so we know that what John saw when he wrote the book of Revelation, this is going to happen. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to be there. So now, it's getting real hot. And he takes me to Acts. <clears throat> Chapter 20, verses 25 through 27. <clears throat> Paul went to the Ephesians and he was speaking to them. He said, and know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault. For I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. Other translation says your blood is on your own heads. They need to believe. Someone needs to tell them. It's going to happen. Jesus told us to do it almost 2,000 years ago. And if we don't take a responsibility like Paul did when he had the opportunity to share to the Ephesians, if we don't take those opportunities to do this work, their blood is on our hands. It is partially our fault. We have a responsibility. And so at that point forward, I knew that I was going to be living for a purpose to take the gospel to the unreached. 
I didn't know that I was going to be a missionary. I actually thought that I was going to be living in India because I love Indian food and riding around on a rickshaw sounds pretty awesome. Um, but that's what I thought was going to happen. I wasn't, when I asked the question, what about the people that live in the jungle and never have an opportunity? Trust me, I was not thinking I was going to be living in a jungle, like maybe an urban jungle, concrete jungle, but not a real jungle. But God was faithful and he worked in my heart and eventually through this conviction that I had from his word and the Holy Spirit working in my life, I went down this road of becoming a missionary and we went and got training. I met my wife right as I was getting ready to go. Like, well, we met for a while before, but I was getting ready to go. I'm like, I'm not dating anyone because I'm getting really close to starting this training and I haven't come across any 3-H girls. And so I'm just gonna be narrow and focused. And when I get into the training, maybe I'll find a wife there. And God's like, Sean, I got this. And six weeks before I started Bible school, I asked Jenny out on our first date. And uh, a year later we were married. Um, but we went through training for four years. We were trained to be church planners and Bible translators to unreached people who live in remote places. Go ahead, go to the next slide. So we are church planning and Bible translating is what we do. That's our job title. If you look at um, the paperwork, paperwork we submit to the Papua New Guinea government, it says church planners, Bible translators, missionaries. Like that's what we do, that's what we're, our title is. So what does that mean? What are we trying to accomplish out there? We have these ministry tasks that we're trying to accomplish. The first thing, and we actually communicated this to the people when we moved into the village. When we asked if we could come in and build our houses and live among them, we said we came to do these things. We have come to learn your language and your culture. That's the first thing we're gonna do. The second thing we're gonna do is we're gonna teach you to read and write in your own language. And then we're going to translate God's word into your language so that you always have it in your own language as a resource so that you can know what God's word actually says. And lastly, we're going to teach you God's word in your language, starting in the beginning, making our way all the way through the end so that you understand the entire picture, the entire story of God's word. So that way, if anyone comes to try to teach you things, you know what the real story is from start to finish. And so sometimes people will look at one small snippet of scripture and tell you that this is what God's word is all about. But when you know the whole story, you know for sure. And then also we're gonna teach them to teach others in the literacy program and teach others God's word. And so the last thing, we didn't make it abundantly clear that this was our goal, but it's kind of obvious, is to plant a mature church. What is a mature church? Well, first off, in Papua New Guinea, that means that there's not a white man standing up front teaching every Sunday. I'm not a pastor of a church in Papua New Guinea. I want to plant a church in Papua New Guinea and pass that on as soon as possible to Monum men to lead this church going forward. And so we have to teach God's word. We have to translate God's word, the entire New Testament. Listen, all scripture is God breathed. If they don't have access to God's word in their language, how can we expect them to grow in their maturity and to be self-sustaining as a church? How can we trust that they're gonna be reliant on God's word if they can't even read God's word in their own language? 
And so that's a huge task, but we want to disciple them, see them grow so that they're not dependent on us as missionaries, that they're not dependent on outside finances and resources to fund what they have going on. If they need outside resources, guess what? It's not really a monum church. It's just something else that's been put there because it needs to be of the people and by the people, right? And so it needs to look like a monum church should look. If it looks like this, we're in big trouble. Uh, and there are things that will be very monum that some people will be like, Sean, that's very legalistic. I'm sorry, it's their culture. Right now, when they have a village meeting, the men sit on one side and the women sit on the other, and I guarantee you they're gonna do that in the church as well. And it's not because we think they should, but it's just the way their culture is, and they're automatically gonna do that. Do I tell them to stop doing that because it looks legalistic? No, I'll let the Holy Spirit convict them in their lives and how they should operate. But this is what we're doing. One day we want to leave. We want to finish the translation. We want to have a strong, mature church that's multiplying out to the other villages in our language group, maybe crossing over to a neighboring language. We want to see this happening and come home. We want to be done with this. My desire is not to die on a volcano in Papua New Guinea. I'm sorry. Uh, my goal is to finish this work and come home and maybe challenge others to do what I've done. <clears throat> but that's a quick synopsis on what we are doing. But now to the lesson at hand, Acts. This is a story that's been ongoing. And that's the one thing that's great about the book of Acts is it's a story. Sometimes we don't think about it that way, but it is a story. It's a narrative. And almost... All of scripture is a story, except for certain parts are maybe poetic. Sometimes uh, they're apocalyptic, like Revelation and parts of Daniel. But a lot of it throughout the Old Testament, and especially the Gospels and the book of Acts, it's a story that gives us a glimpse as to what God was doing amongst his people at this time. And this is an exciting time. Maybe one of the most exciting times in history is the book of Acts because something happened. Jesus came on the scene. He died. He was buried. He resurrected and he ascended in Acts uh, 1.8. Immediately, like, or Acts 1.9, he ascends into heaven. And now the church is left with the task of continuing on this ministry. And we see that it explodes throughout the known world. And this gives us insight as to how that happened and how God used individuals for his glory. And we can look at this as a model for us as how we ought to follow God and trust him for things that are greater than anything we could ever imagine. These are people who were faced with impossible situations to leave their families, to leave their, what was considered their faith because at the time these Jews who were, who were believing Jesus were cast out from the, their own religion that they grew up in their whole lives, that they thought that they were still following, but they were just following the continuation of that by worshiping Jesus, who is the Messiah, the promised one. And then we see that it jumps over from just the Jews to also including the Gentiles, which includes all of us here, unless some of you are national Jews, which I'm not sure, but there might be a few. But it jumped over to the rest of the world and opened the door to God's word going out to every tribe, tongue, and nation, like Jesus was saying. He called a shot. And last week, I believe we, taught, we learned about Paul meeting Timothy and him joining up. Is that accurate? And we see how, how Paul brought Timothy along with him in his ministry. But then we see here the next part of the story. 
And then next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of, of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mycenae, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mycenae to the seaport of Charoas. They were trying to go, but God kept on stopping them. And then in verse 9 and 10, that night Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. <clears throat> How many of you have been told no by God before? How many of you had something you really wanted to do and you were trying, striving to go for it? But it didn't work out. Man, I've been there. When I was on this journey, um, I had some struggles. But what we need to understand is God's trying to teach us something through those times he says no. And we look at this, this passage here and we see that Paul and Silas were trying to go to teach the good news to people who hadn't heard it. Does that sound like a good reason to go do something? Right? We want to go and do something good for God. Now, let me be honest. There are some things that we desire to do that are wrong. They're just sinful. And those ones are obvious, right? We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't go down that road. We have a decision. We have a desire to do something, but it's wrong. We shouldn't be doing that. That's not what I'm talking about here. In those situations, you know what is right. And there are some times where you want to go do something and you're just really convicted about it and you decide you're going to go do this. Or there are times where it's unclear. That's where this passage comes into play. Sometimes you have a conviction that you absolutely need to be doing something, but it's not good and bad. And sometimes you have a, you have a, you're at a crossroads and the decision you're going to make is unclear. What should I do, Lord? And that's where this comes into play. So that's where these stories are. And sometimes it's none of those. Sometimes God just puts his foot down and stops you, and you have no idea why. It doesn't make any sense to you in that moment. Here we see they tried to go. God stopped them. And then God gave a vision to Paul of this man in Macedonia. So they head that way, trusting that this is what God has. Do they 100% know for sure that this is right? No, but they really feel convicted by God that this is what they should do, and so they go, and they follow his conviction they put on him. Times God has said no for me and for a friend of mine. Uh, the first one is uh, when I was in college, I decided to be a missionary, right? I was convicted by Claude telling me this stuff. I want to go to the unreached. I want to ride on a rickshaw, eat curry, and tell Indians about Jesus. And so I'm trying to head down to India. You can go to the next slide. I'm trying to go to India, take a year off of college, and go minister amongst Indian college students in New Delhi, India. And so I go through this application process, and everything's looking good. 
the team leaders like Sean, I'm so excited about the potential of having you on my team and going and do this. Everything was looking golden. I had been faithful in leading other students on campus and discipling them and raising them up into to the point where they were also now doing ministry. And I was like, man, I've been faithful, God, and now I'm going to go serve you in India. And the team leader's excited about it. I apply, go through the process, and I wait. I interview. Everything's great. I wait. And then, oh, cool. Just found out John's on the team. That's awesome. Oh, Britain's on the team. Oh, he's on the team. She's, wait a minute. I'm not receiving this call. And I wait, and I know there's only one spot left now. And I'm waiting, and I get the call. Stephen, what's up, man? What do you got for me? Sean, I don't know how to explain this. From day one, I thought you were going to be on this team, and I've been excited about living with you for a year overseas in India, doing this ministry alongside you. But every time I pray about it, it's between you and one other guy. His name's Justin. Every time I pray about it, I think I'm supposed to take Justin instead of you. And I can't explain it. But every time I pray about it, I don't feel like you're the one that's supposed to be on this team. So I'm sorry, man. You're not going to India this year. I was destroyed. You see, there's two ways to handle when God says no. Paul just waited to see what God has for him next. I didn't handle it that way when I had been a believer for a couple of years. My response was, God, I've been faithful. I've been doing what you want me to do. I do everything you want. I try to serve you. I want to serve you overseas, but you won't let me go. What gives? You know what? I turned my back on God for a little while. Not completely, but in the sense of I just gave up trying to live a godly life for a few months. That was the wrong response. Just spoiler alert. That's not how you respond when God closes the door. It's not a healthy response. But he did teach me something through that because it wasn't until six months later that I understood why. You see, Justin Majors was this guy. He grew up in the church, had a really strong support network around him, and had huge impacts in his community and at Oklahoma State University where he was going to college. And when Justin Majors was over there, he was on a motorcycle, got hit by a car, and he died in India. And his death caused a ripple effect throughout those connections that Justin Majors had. And there are people that I know that are serving overseas today because of Justin Majors' life. I had been a believer for like two years, got saved in college, and wasn't even like five people would have cried and one of them is my mom, right? People would have been sad about the loss, but a couple months later, they would have forgotten about it and moved on. Justin Major's life is still having an impact today on the Great Commission and on people trusting God for bigger things. I now realize why God didn't want me on that trip in the short-sighted side of things. But then now, where I'm at, I see the long side. He had other plans for me. He had other ministries that he wanted me to do. He had a desire for me to go live on a volcano to tell people about Jesus there. There are times when we didn't know what to do. That was something where I'm like, this is obviously good. I'm convicted about it. This is what I want to do. But God said no, and I had no idea what was going on. This next one is a situation where 
we were unsure. We're in Papua New Guinea. We're trying to figure out who we're going to partner with to do this great work with. And we had been meeting with teams. And there's one team in particular. We went and lived with them for three weeks out in the tribe. They were already in a tribe. And we went and lived with them for three weeks. And we're trying to figure out if we should be joining this team. It's kind of like a, like a very high-pressure dating situation. Like The Bachelor without any debauchery and no cameras. But it was a high-pressure situation. We're trying to feel each other out. Is this what God would have? And, man, there's some things I saw that weren't the best. But you know what? God wants to reach these people too. But I'm not sure. I prayed about it. And I said, Jenny, I'm trusting God that if he doesn't want us to join this team, that he'll just convict someone to absolutely say no. But as of right now, if they ask us to join, I think we're going to move forward with it. Waited, waited. We get the email. Hey, it wasn't unanimous, so we're not asking you to join our team. At that point, my response wasn't, what are you doing, God? It was like, okay, God, I trust you that this isn't the path you have me down. Because over time, I had grown in learning to trust God when he says no. Because it wasn't just like that India one and then this one. There have been hundreds of them in between. But Jenny and I have grown accustomed in our life, in our walk with God, when we come to these big decisions and we're not 100% sure of what we should be doing, we pray and say, God, we're going to walk faithfully. We're going to head down this direction. It's what we desire to do. We're going to head down this direction. If you don't want it, put a stop to it. And he is faithful to do that every time. Now, this last story is someone else's story. I called him actually uh, yesterday to get clarification because it's been a while since I heard it. But Bob Hazen's a missionary. He was in Africa uh, he and his family, they're now back stateside, but they were missionaries in Africa. They're from Pittsburgh. And in 1996, they're trying to get back to Africa to get back to work. And they buy their tickets and they go to the airport in Pittsburgh to get on the plane to go to New York, to New York, to Africa. <clears throat> and when they get to the airport, they find out that their plane from Pittsburgh to New York is having mechanical issues. There's a storm coming through and everything was getting delayed and pushed back and he's going to miss his flight with the African airline from New York to Africa. He's going to miss it. And so the airline in America says, hey, it's cool. We've got a way we can get you there around the same time, a little bit later, but like just a few hours difference. And what we'll do is we'll contact the African airline. We'll buy your ticket off of them and we will book you through. Awesome. This works out perfect. Okay, so they try to book it and guess what happens? God said no. That African airline refused to sell the ticket to the American airline. They said, no, we're not going to sell it. They're going to have to rebook through us and pay the rebooking charge. And so they've got to pay a rebooking charge to fly out the next day. And then they have to pay for a hotel in New York that night. And last minute hotel rooms in New York are not cheap. And so it costs them all this money. They're just trying to get back to Africa to do their ministry, get back to the Ivory Coast. They're trying to get there. They cost them a lot of money. They're going to be a day late. And they're like, God, why are you doing this to us? They get on the plane the next morning. They fly to the Ivory Coast. First thing when they get off the plane, they see the headlines. 
TWA Flight 800 crashes, everyone on board dies. And that was the flight that they were begging God and begging the airline to get them on. They had no idea why God would cause them to have to spend all those hundreds of dollars and why he would hold them up, why this was happening. <coughs> but what we see is God was sparing them for the sake of them being able to continue on in ministry. And yesterday, Bob says, Sean, even more than that, my 12-year-old son at that time wasn't a believer. Had we been on that plane, Sonia and I would be in heaven, but our son would be in hell. But today, as a grown adult, he's got a wonderful family, has beautiful kids, and he's a pastor at a church and has a vibrant ministry. And all the impact that he's had on the kingdom of heaven wouldn't have happened had we been on that flight. Bob said, every time I struggle with why God is causing things to come up in my life, why he's saying no, <clears throat> we make it a point to look back and look at the pictures because they like reconstructed the airplane from all the wreckage. Look at the pictures of that airplane, read the headlines that everyone on board died. And we remember God is in control. We don't have to be. Through these experiences, we learn to trust God. And that's what it's all about, is understanding that God is trustworthy. We ourselves aren't trustworthy to ourselves. Can you trust yourself very much? When's the last time you let yourself down? Mine was this morning, multiple times. My wife can attest to it in a big way. I'm sorry, babe. God says no for a reason. It's so that he can grow us and also so he can set us down the path that he wants us on to bring more glory to his name. The question is, are you going to allow God to live through you so that he can receive that glory? Are you going to be a stick in the mud like I was when he told me no about going to India? Are you going to be there pouting, asking God, why are you doing this? I'm so faithful. I'm so awesome. I'm not awesome. I'm not that good. And God is gracious enough to use me anyway. We need to have that humble attitude when we come to the Lord and understand that he is good. In fact, in Romans 8, 28, it says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. If you're following God, if he's sending you down a road and you're following him down that road, he's doing everything he can for your benefit, for your good. It doesn't always feel good, but it's for your good. And we can know that he is faithful to that because he's always been faithful. We have one responsibility. And it's the same responsibility that there was in the Garden of Eden when God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The same responsibility Cain had when God said, if you, do what is, if you bring what is right, you will surely be accepted, but sin is waiting to devour you. If he just would have believed God then and not killed his brother, it would have been so much better for him. And when Abraham believed God about the promises, and when God says all who believe will be saved, we as believers have a responsibility just to believe that God is in control and he is good and he is trustworthy. Because when we believe that's true, we will walk in light of it. You don't live in, need to live in fear of what's going to happen tomorrow. 
Because God is in control. If you're walking with him, it'll be all right. Even when it doesn't feel good, it's all right. He's in control and we can trust him with it. So I ask you all going forward to know that God's in control. To walk in light of that. And the cool thing about this story where Paul was held back, Paul and Silas were held back and they ended up going <coughs> to Macedonia. Next week you're going to learn about where specifically in Macedonia they went and what came out of that. And you will be able to see why God led them down that direction because it has eternal impacts in a huge way. I want to pray and close this out. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity we have to know you and to follow you. Lord, I pray that you put a burden on everyone's hearts here, Lord, to trust you even when you say no, even when it hurts. And Father, help us to be obedient to following your conviction that you put in our lives. Thank you for your grace and the opportunity we have to be your children. In Jesus' name, amen.